We are looking this afternoon at the Belgic Confession, Article 10, which is found on page 57, and I'll read the article first. Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature, but coessential and co-eternal with the Father, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, equal unto him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as these testimonies, when compared together, teach us. Moses says that God created the world, and the Apostle John says that all things were made by that word which he calls God. The Apostle says that God made the world by his Son, likewise that God created all things by Jesus Christ. Therefore it must needs follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ did exist at that time when all things were created by him. Therefore the prophet Micah says, his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, and the Apostle having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He, therefore, is that true, eternal, and almighty God, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. Really, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, this article is also about the doctrine of the Trinity, because it proves to us that the second person of the Trinity is indeed God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And there are two kinds of uh, material in the article. There's first that material which teaches us what is meant by the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, or that Jesus is God. And the second part, the scriptural proof of that teaching. So that's how we're going to divide our uh, study this afternoon as well. First of all, What does the confession have to say about the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ? And secondly, what is the scriptural proof of that doctrine? The confession actually makes four statements in the course of the article about what this confession that Jesus Christ is God means. And those four statements are these. First, He is the only begotten Son of God. And we have to go into what that means, of course. Secondly, therefore, he is co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, equal to him in all things. Thirdly, therefore, he existed at the time that all things were created. And finally, therefore, He is the true, eternal, and almighty God whom we invoke, worship, and serve. So let's look at each one of those statements. First, he is the only begotten Son of God. It's very important that we uh, understand the meaning of that phrase as the confession uses it here. Because when we say that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that has two different meanings in the scriptures. On the one hand, 
that phrase means that according to his human nature, he is the Son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. His human nature, therefore, was a human nature conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And in that human nature, therefore, he is the Son of God. And even, we may say, the only begotten Son of God. As our catechism says uh, in another place, we are sons by adoption, but he is the eternal and natural Son of God because he is begotten. But that's not the way that the confession uses the phrase here in this article. Because the confession is talking about the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very clear in the article when it says, we believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God. I would actually prefer to say there, we believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine person, is the only begotten Son of God. His nature is the nature, the one nature, the one essence, the one being of the triune God. His person is the only begotten Son of God. When we call him, therefore, the only begotten Son of God, we are talking about that fact that the Father eternally begets the Son, the second person of the Trinity. There are no other divine sons, and therefore he's called the only begotten Son. There are human sons, even the angels are called sons of God, but there are no other divine sons. He is the Son who is eternally begotten, that is, who was begotten from before the foundation of the world. And because he is eternally begotten, he is not made nor created as Arius and others taught. So he is, that's the first statement. He is the only begotten Son of God according to his divine person. And this means that he is the second person of the Trinity that he is indeed God. But it follows from that then, and we should notice, if if you want to look at it in the article, you can do that, how the article uses a chain of reasoning here. It begins with this this, uh, statement, he's the only begotten Son of God, and then it draws a conclusion from it. Therefore, it says, he is co-essential and co-eternal with the Father equal to him in all things. So that's the second thing that the confession says. And here, of course, we come back to that idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, which says God is one in essence and three in persons. And here is the confession. He is co-essential. That is, he is of the same essence with the Father. The Father's begetting of his Son is different from our begetting of our Son. We beget sons who have different essences, who are different beings from ourselves. The father begets a son who is of the same essence as himself, not a different being, but still a different person. 
The Son, the eternal Son, is of one essence, co-essential with the Father. Secondly, he is co-eternal. That is, he partakes of the divine attribute of eternity. He is from everlasting and to everlasting, just as the Father is from everlasting and to everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And thirdly, then, in this connection, he is equal to the Father in all things. That is, in all the other attributes of God. In his righteousness, his wisdom, his knowledge, his love, all those attributes of God that are listed in the first article of the Confession belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is equal to the Father in all of those attributes. He is therefore co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, equal to him in all things. He is God. And again, a therefore. Because he is co-eternal with the Father, he existed at the time that all things were created. And the point which the confession is making here is that therefore he's not a creature. There are only two, two choices here. Either one is God or one is a creature. There are no other gods. There's only one God. There are no inferior gods as some of the early Christian heretics taught. There are no divine uh, emanations as some also taught. There is one God and many creatures, and either one belongs to the category of God or to the category of creature. The Son does not belong to the category of creature. He is therefore God. He existed at the time that all things were created. That is, he existed from eternity, and that of necessity implies that he is God. And then the final statement, again preceded by a therefore. Therefore, he is the true, eternal, and almighty God, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. He is the true, eternal, and almighty God, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. And the point which the confession is making there is, of course, first of all, that he is God. And because he is God, therefore, we offer to him all that worship and all that service which belongs to God alone. We invoke him, that is, we pray to him, we call on his name, just as we call on the name of the Father. In fact, when we call on the name of the Father, our Father who art in heaven, we are calling upon the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. We worship him. That is, in our public worship, we perform formal acts of worship to the Father and the Son. We worship the triune God. We worship the second person of the Trinity along with the first person of the Trinity. We offer to him those, that kind of worship which is due only to God, which may not be offered to any other creature God himself says, you shall have no other gods 
before me. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And we worship, therefore, the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, when we offer our worship to God. And finally, we serve him. That is, we obey him. We see him as our master, as our ruler and governor, as our owner. And we obey and work for him because he is our God. So those are the four things that the confession says about the deity of Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, equal to him in all things. He existed at the time that all things were created and therefore is not a creature. He is the true, eternal, and almighty God whom we invoke, worship, and serve. You cannot have a much clearer statement, I think, of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come then to the scriptural proof of this teaching as we find it in the article. And the first uh, quotation we have in the article is from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. I'm going to take a little bit of time to talk about those first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1, because there's a lot that's said in those verses about the glory of Christ, our Savior. What we have here in these first three verses, in fact, really in the whole chapter, the whole first chapter of Hebrews, is a comparison between the revelation of God to his people in the Old Testament and the revelation of God to his people in the New Testament. And his revelation to his people in the Old Testament is summed up in very short statement in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. That's his revelation in the Old Testament. He spoke by the prophets. He spoke at various times and in various ways. But now, the apostle says, in verse 2 and following through the rest of the chapter, he has spoken to us by his Son. And that is a much better revelation And that's the point that he makes through all the rest of the chapter. How much better is this revelation than the revelation of God in the Old Testament? Well, it is better according to the measure of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is greater than the glory of everything that went before him. His glory is is greater than the glory of the angels, the most the creatures of God who have the most glory in all of his creation. And that glory, then, of the Lord Jesus Christ is described, first of all, in a number of phrases in verses 2 and 3. And I want to take a brief moment to look at those phrases. First of all, he has appointed his son, to be the heir of all things. That's the first thing it says. That is, 
He has given to his son, as his possession, the whole of his creation. You see how he is exalted, then, above the creation. He is the heir of all things. He said to his son in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. He has given his son as to be the heir of all things. That's first. Secondly, it says, through whom also he made the worlds. That is, by his son, he created the worlds. He is that son of God of whom John speaks in chapter 1 of his gospel, saying, all things were made by him, that is, by the word, the logos, and without him nothing was made that was made, through whom he made the worlds. He participated then in the work of creation, as the confession also says in this article. The third thing that the verses say is, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. We're going to pass over that for a moment. We want to come back to that because that's the main quotation here in the article. And go on to the next thing. The fourth thing is upholding all things by the word of his power. And notice that there the uh, apostle talks about the work of providence. So this son, whom God appointed to be the heir of all things, is also the one through whom he made the worlds and by whom he upholds all things. That is, by whom he performs his works of providence. He upholds all his creatures in existence by the word of his power. That son is the word of his power. And in the fifth place, then, notice that it says, when he had by himself purged our sins. So he was involved in creation, a divine work. He is involved in providence, a divine work. He is also involved in salvation, another divine work. When he had by himself purged our sins. And then... When he had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he was given a position and a glory which exceeds the glory and position of any of the angels. He has obtained a more excellent name than they. Now let's come back then, after seeing all that glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in these things, let's come back to that phrase at the beginning of verse 3, that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The word brightness is a word which we might perhaps translate as shining forth. He is the shining forth of the glory of of God. I think that phrase should remind us of the Apostle Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 2 that in our Lord Jesus Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
God is the invisible God. But in the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which the fullness of the Godhead dwells, the glory of God becomes visible. The glory of God shines forth because he is God in our flesh, God with us. And this is explained then by the fact that he is the express image of his person. That is, he is the image of the invisible God, to use another expression from the Apostle Paul in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. And he is the express image of his substance. Although this has person, that word that's used there is a difficult word. It's a word which means, in a number of places in the New Testament, really confidence. And it's the word, actually, from which we get the word um, hypostatic, if you've ever heard that word hypostatic. We'll be talking about that in a few weeks, the Lord willing. But it's a word which uh, means uh, substance also sometimes. Person is, is probably not quite what the Greek means, although it's a very difficult word. It's the word that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Hebrews 11, verse 1, when the apostle defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Some want to make that the confidence of things hoped for, and undoubtedly that's part of what Hebrews 11 means, but I think substance is probably the better translation there too. It is the substance of things hoped for, and the Son is the express image of the substance of God, of the essence, of the being of God. So that when we see the Son, we see God. We're going to be coming back, actually, to Hebrews 1 in a little while, but uh, for now, let's go on to the next part of the proof in the confession. The confession also refers us to John 1, verses 1 to 3. And we all know those verses very well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. There are, I think, three things in there that point us to the fact that Christ is God. First, it says it in so many words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God. Secondly, that verse, those verses tell us that He is the eternal Word. In the beginning, was the word. And John is taking us back to Genesis 1, verse 1, where God, the word says, in the beginning God created. God was in the beginning. He was the only thing that existed in the beginning. But he brought other things into being. Well, in that same beginning, in which nothing else existed besides God, was the word, the eternal word 
who was with God and who was God. And thirdly, those verses teach us again that this eternal word created all things. All things were made by him. That's John 1, verses 1 to 3. The confession then cites Hebrews 1, verse 3. God made the world by his Son. It also cites Ephesians 3, verse 9. God created all things by Jesus Christ. Creation is a divine work. That means that Christ is indeed God. Two more passages to which we want to pay a little bit more attention. Micah 5, verse 2. His goings forth have been from of old. Now, if you turn to that passage, Micah 5, verse 2. You can see there that this passage is a prophecy about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and particularly about the place of his birth. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And of course, it was from this verse that the uh, leaders of the Jews, whom Herod called together when the wise men came to Jerusalem, uh, told the wise men where to find Jesus when they came seeking him. They came to Jerusalem. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod didn't know, and he called the leaders of the Jews, and the leaders of the Jews says, well, we know where uh, he is to be born. He's to be born in Bethlehem. They didn't go there themselves. But the wise men went, and there they found him. Now notice that it says there, that out of Bethlehem shall he come forth to me, who is to be ruler in Israel. And then, whose goings forth, and that's the same word in, that's in the prior line, whose comings forth, if you will, are from of old, from everlasting. Now some say that the reference there in that last part of the verse is to his being from the line of David. And this, therefore, points us to the fulfillment of the promise of, to David that he would uh, beget a son who would sit on his throne forever, who would be ruler in Israel. But our confession obviously takes it to mean that his goings forth have been from before the foundations of the world. He is eternal. He is the everlasting God. And then the final passage is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, which is about Melchizedek, actually. The confession is quoting a verse that's uh, not directly about our Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, it is said, 
was king of righteousness, that's what his name means, Melchizedek, and king of Salem, that is king of that city, which later became Jerusalem. And that name, king of Salem, means king of peace. Salem is the Hebrew word for peace. And then it said of Melchizedek also, he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And probably what that verse is saying about Melchizedek is that he was without genealogy and without beginning of days or end of life with regard to his priesthood. His priesthood had no roots in a former priesthood as Aaron's did or as the descendants of Aaron's priesthood did. And it had no end of life. That is, there were no priests to follow him and as Aaron had priests to follow him. He was a priest who stood all by himself. But in this, the apostle says, he was made like the Son of God, who remains a priest continually. What was true of Melchizedek in a very limited way, then, is true of Christ in an unlimited way. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. He is the eternal Son of God who lives and reigns forever and ever. Now, that's what the article cites as proof. I think it would be useful to us also to go into some additional proof from the scriptures about this deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is look first at some Old Testament passages. Let's begin with Isaiah 7, verse 14, a very familiar verse. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a verse that teaches us that our Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is God with us. He is God who has come to tabernacle in our flesh. God, when God says, I will be with you, he doesn't mean it in the sense that he's constantly there to be our help and our comfort and so on, that his word is present with us and so on, that we can always find uh, the scriptures, find him in the scriptures. But what he means by that is, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to come and make my home among you. I'm going to tabernacle among you. I'm going to have my dwelling among you. I'm going to tabernacle in your flesh. He is God with us. As John 1 says, he became flesh and tabernacled among us. Another verse Isaiah 8, verse 9. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now it's hard to say what Everlasting Father means in that context, and we won't go into that this afternoon. But note that it gives to him 
the name, this son who is born to us, the mighty God. It doesn't say he is a God. It doesn't say he is an emanation from God. It doesn't say he is like God. It doesn't say he has a glory that is greater than all the creatures. It says he is the mighty God. The one God, the God of Israel. And then Hebrews chapter 1 again. And I go back to Hebrews chapter 1 here because Hebrews chapter 1 cites a whole series of Old Testament verses. And I just want to point out these verses from the Psalms in Hebrews. First of all, you have Psalm 2. In verse 5 of Hebrews 1, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a glory of Christ that sets him above the angels. And I think we may take it that he is the divine son of God as well as the son of God in his human nature. The Jews knew that when Christ called himself son of God, that he was claiming to be God. They expected their Messiah to be the Son of God and to be God himself. Again, the next verse comes from Psalm 45, verse 6. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, that's not the one. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 6 is found in verses 8 and 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, if you go back to Psalm 45, you see that that's a psalm which celebrates the wedding of the king, the marriage of the king to his bride. And the first half of the psalm celebrates the glory of the king, and the second Uh, half of the psalm, celebrates the beauty of his bride. And this psalm has rightly been taken as about being about Christ and his church. You are fairer, this is about Christ, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. And then the quotation which Hebrews uses, Therefore God has blessed you, Forever, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your and your majesty. In your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness, and so on. And verse six, then, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we might, if we just read that straight through, we might say, well, that's just referring to God, not to the King. But Hebrews one says. No, that verse is about the king too. The psalmist is addressing the king when he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And that's very clear from the end of verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That psalm calls the king whom God anoints over his people, God, your throne, 
O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 97 is another psalm that's quoted in this passage. That's in verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. He is the proper object of worship, a worship which belongs to no others and which the angels themselves must offer. And then also Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, that's quoted in verses 10, 11, and 12 of Hebrews 1. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Reading that psalm, we would say, well, that's about God. There's nothing about Christ there. Hebrews 1 teaches us otherwise. When the psalmist says, and when we sing, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, we are addressing Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, and who laid the foundations of the earth. He is, in fact, Yahweh, the God of Israel. You, Lord, that's the name Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. He is the one of whom it is said, you are the same, and your years will not fail. He is the unchangeable and eternal God. So this proof is found all over the Old Testament, as well as all over the New. Let's refer to a few verses in the New Testament as well. Titus 2, verse 13, we've talked about this verse before, but it's a very important verse, Titus 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. 1 John 5, verse 20, is another one. 1 John 5, verse 20, as John brings his first epistle to an end. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This, and that's referring to his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God, and eternal life. And we have Thomas in John chapter 20 saying to him, when Jesus invited him to thrust his fingers into his palms and his hand into his side, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. All those passages ascribed to our Lord Jesus Christ divine names, the name of God himself. Divine honors are also paid to him, as we've seen in some of the other verses. Here's another one, 
Revelation 5, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Notice that they fell it down before the Lamb. That's the worship which the angels who made this revelation, parts of this revelation anyway, to John, refused from John. Do not do it, they said. Worship God. Here the people of God and the whole creation are falling down before the Lamb. John 6, verses 68 and 69, also. Many of Jesus' disciples departed from him after he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He didn't want any more to do with him. And Jesus turned to his, the twelve and he said, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those are the words that belong to God. Only God has such words. You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Divine works are ascribed to him as well. The confession has talked about creation. He is the Savior as well. We don't even need to quote verses here. We know how many, many times, dozens, if not hundreds of times, our Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as Savior. Who saves but God? Salvation is of the Lord, Psalm 3 says. And that means not only that salvation is exclusively and only from the Lord, but that our Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. That is our confession in Psalm 3. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of that one who has become our Savior. And when you look at it that way, then, of course, you see that the Psalms are full of this truth as well. Over and over again, they talk about how the Lord saves, how the Lord is our Savior, what the Lord does for his people. Well, you can say in all of those Psalms and in all of those Old Testament scriptures which talk about that, those are about Christ. Those passages are saying Christ saves, Christ does these things for us. He is the Lord who saves. He is the one who forgives sin. The Pharisees rightly said, after Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic, who can forgive sins but God alone? Yes, indeed, they were right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Our Lord, Jesus Christ, is God. And therefore has the power on earth to forgive sins. And he proved it to those unbelieving Jews by healing the paralytic. 
So what we find throughout the scriptures in many different ways and in many different places is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is the eternal God. He is the one who is co-essential and co-eternal with God. He is, to put it as emphatically as possible, he is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is our God and the God of Israel come in our flesh to be our Savior. May God bless us with his word.